You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. I wanted to go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, Deus Ex Machina. Learning Latin, praise God, that's a, a great skill to have. In ancient Greek theater, in ancient plays, whenever a, the plot of a story or the narrative of a story entered into a seemingly unsolvable problem, the playwrights would introduce this, this unexpected, this unlikely twist, a solution to the problem, and they would call it the deus ex machina, or rather, the god of the machine. And since ancient Greek theater and plays, this, this sort of theater or this, this, this story trope has been in every work of fiction, in every uh, movie, in every story that you have probably seen or watched or heard. For example, if you've ever watched the original Jurassic Park, probably the best Jurassic Park in the whole series, right? At the very end, when the family is trying to run away and they get surrounded by these velociraptors, Right? And you think all hope is lost, they're about to get eaten out of Nora. What, what comes? The T-Rex. Saves the day. Eats, the, eats the, the, the raptors. Or how about this? You know, I'm a, I'm a big nerd, and, and for, the most, for the most part of my church knows this, right? I'm a big uh, Lord of the Rings fan. How about the end of the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king, when Frodo and Sam are at, the, at Mount Doom, and they're surrounded by volcano? And you think all is lost. They destroyed the ring. But here are the heroes now going to perish. And out of nowhere, in the clouds, you see Gandalf and the eagles come and fly in, swoop, swoop in and save the, 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 the hobbits. Those are deus ex machina, examples of those. A plot device whereby a seemingly unsolvable problem in a story suddenly is resolved by an unexpected or unlikely scenario. And that's essentially what we just read in our passage today in the Gospel of Luke, in the Easter story. Recall for a moment the plot of Easter leading up to this passage. Here is the Son of God comes down in human flesh. Jesus lives this perfectly moral and good life, never sinned, does three years of earthly ministry, healing people, preaching the gospel, teaching people, casting out demons, and then towards Passover, he's betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. He's then brought to a mock trial. He's accused. He's slandered. He's unbeaten. And continued to be mocked and whipped and eventually crucified. That's what happened to the Son of God. That's what humanity did to the Son of God. We nailed him to a Roman cross. And remember, this is the Son of God, the God of the Old Testament. The same God who brought fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah. The same God who sent plagues to Egypt. That God, he crucified his Son. The story, a parable that Jesus talks about in Matthew 21, about this man who owned a vineyard. And the, the people that he left the vineyard to work uh, on, he, they, they abused it. And so when the man sent his son in to get everything in order, the, 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 the tenants or the, the, the servants ended up killing the son. And Jesus asked the question, what do you think is going to happen to those servants, those unfaithful servants who killed the son? The 
people ask, well, he's going to put those wretches to death. He's going to execute them for what they did to their son. And here it is, again, the Easter situation is the worst possible scenario for humanity. We nailed the Son of God to a tree, to a cross. We, we, we had him go through excruciating suffering. There's no going back from that. That's, all that's left for us is to face the punishment, the, the vengeance, the wrath of God for what we did to his son. It's like, it's like crucifying, it's like, it's like punishing, it's like beating, it's, it's killing, for example, the son of a, a judge. How, do, how could we expect any mercy or any leniency? But yet, here comes the deus ex machina of our story. The most unlikely solution to this great problem that we built for ourselves. This unsolvable problem in verse 34 of our passage. It says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. What? Have you ever heard of such a thing? Here is the Son of God Himself asking for forgiveness for the slanderers, the brutalizers, the ones who abused Him, the ones who, who whipped Him, the ones who nailed Him to a tree, and yet here He is asking for forgiveness. It doesn't make sense. You know, in, in the Gospels, there are seven statements of Christ on the cross. And six out of those, six out of those seven statements make sense. It's what you would expect from a dying man hanging on a cross. One, he, 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 he says, Woman, behold your son and behold your mother to the Apostle John. It's like, take care of my, my mom. I would expect that on your deathbed. Or how about, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That makes sense. He felt abandonment from God. Or I thirst. Or it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those things make sense on the cross. But what doesn't make sense is pleading for forgiveness for those who hurt you, for those who crucified you. It's so out of place, so unlikely. Again, the deus ex machina of our story. Well, well, how about this? Maybe we interpreted that statement wrong. Maybe we interpreted that verse wrong. Okay, so the original Greek of forgive them is alphemi, to, to, to send away or to release, to release rather. Meaning, okay, to, to release of offense or to release of guilt and charge. So Jesus is saying, Father, release them of their wrong. Release them of what they've done wrong to me. Release them of their guilt. That doesn't make any more sense in the original Greek. Surely he meant, okay, I'm going to forgive you now, but if you do it again, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that action. I'm going to forgive you now, but if you, if you continue to do this, well, well, then God's wrath is going to come. Or maybe he meant, well, I'm going to forgive you, but really I'm going to be bitter in my heart. That's often the definition of forgiveness that we understand, especially in this world, right? Yet what we see in our passage and the story of Easter is that Christ demonstrates a forgiveness that's unlike our own. That's not like our own. That's completely and radically different from the kind of forgiveness that we know. And my hope for us this morning is that we would not just be reminded of Easter, but that we would truly understand what forgiveness entails. 
And the kind of forgiveness that we are offered, that we are invited to through the act of Christ on the cross. That we would be reminded of what we have been forgiven from and what made forgiveness necessary. And, and, and why, if, if you have not received the forgiveness of God, why it is crucial, why it is necessary and essential for you to receive it today. You know, we, as I mentioned, we live in a society, in a culture that, that sees forgiveness as a foreign thing. Maybe you've heard this term before, cancel culture. It's literally a culture that is based on unforgiveness. You find something wrong in somebody's past, maybe an old tweet, maybe an old post, and instead of forgiving, we bring it up, we accuse them, we base their entire identity on that past, on that failure, on that sin. We live in a culture of unforgiveness. So my hope for us this morning is that we would truly, truly receive from the gospel a true image of what forgiveness is. A full picture of what forgiveness is and what that entails. A full picture of what Easter, the, the, the Easter that we celebrate. So let's jump into our text this morning. We're going to unpack it for us bit by bit. Everyone say, jump for me. So in our process of understanding what biblical forgiveness is, let's first look at the, like, the extent of forgiveness. The extent of forgiveness. In our passage, what, it is, what is Christ asking for forgiveness for, for these people? What does it encompass? To what extent does his forgiveness apply? Was it everything leading up to this statement, to, to verse 34? Was it you know, him being crucified, him being mocked, him being beaten? What was, what, what was he asking for? How about the mockery afterwards that takes place after he prays this prayer? Is that forgiven too? Well, I think the rest of that verse in 34 clarifies the extent of this forgiveness that Jesus is seeking for the people. Jesus says in, in verse 34, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, asked, Jesus is asking the Father for their forgiveness, not because they beat him, not because they were mocking him, not because they crucified him, but because in their ignorance, they failed to understand the full scope of their wickedness. They failed to understand what they actually did. See, as mentioned, Jesus lived a perfect life, a good moral life. He didn't sin, and for three years he did earthly ministry. He was healing the sick, teaching, he was, he was raising the dead, casting out demons, all of that. But even after that three years of ministry, these people still did not believe who Jesus was. They still did not know who Jesus was. Jesus had been saying for time and time again that he was the Son of God. And yet, the people still did not believe. So Jesus is pleading for forgiveness, not because of what was already done to him, but for all their actions done in ignorance, including the mockery that would follow. Because what, if we look at our passage, again, Jesus had already gone through so much Leading up to this moment. But it was not enough for this people. Look at what happens in verse 34 again. It says in verse 34 of our passage, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they, not know, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. 
They started gambling for Jesus' clothes, and, then, and the people stood by watching, by, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, he is his chosen one. Completely mocking Jesus, continuing to mock Jesus. Oh, and then this part, verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. In the other Gospels, it talks about how the soldiers took a sponge, dipped it in wine, and put it on a spear and gave it to Jesus to drink. But it's interesting that it says that it was in, in a way to mock Jesus. How was this a mocking act to Jesus? In ancient times, Roman soldiers, when they would go out to the field, they would bring with them a, a latrine kit where they would have a sponge and a little bit of wine so that when they used the washroom, they had something to clean themselves with. And so, here are these soldiers taking that same sponge that they would use to, to, for the washroom, to use a bathroom in, put it on a sponge, dip it in wine, and shoved it in the Savior's face. Mocking. And again, they were too were saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him saying, this is the king of the Jews. This was a proclamation from Rome, from the emperor, saying, we have conquered the king of the Jews. This is the king. This is the king of the Jews hanging on the cross, dying, suffering. This is what we did to him. It wasn't enough that they beat him, that he was betrayed, scourged, crucified to a cross. They had to humiliate him. This crucifixion was a humiliating death. And then you might be thinking, well, you know, they, well, they didn't know better, right? Jesus even prayed it, right? Forgive them for they know not what they do. They didn't know better. How could God find fault in them? Here's the thing. Ignorance did not excuse them, but rather confirmed their guilt. Ignorance did not excuse them, but rather accused them of their own guilt. The Bible says spiritual blindness, the inability to discern what is truth and false, what is right and wrong, to do what is good and bad, or rather than bad, the inability to do that. Spiritual blindness is a manifestation of our sin nature. The thing that we are, every single person in this room is inherently born with. The thing in us that causes us to do bad, to choose the bad, to hurt others, to lie, to steal, to lust, to act pridefully and selfishly. We are born with that nature. Listen, we are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. You know, a great example of this, and I always use my kids for this example. I have a four-year-old kid and a four-year-old son, and... Uh, or he's going to be four this year, and then a, a two-and-a-half uh, daughter. And I have a third one on the way, like, whew, busy, right? But I always use my son in reference to this, but in this analogy, but let me talk about my daughter for a change. My two-and-a-half-year-old princess, who, who randomly likes to go up to her brother and just slap him in the face. L literally, my son would just be watching... A, Tunes or whatever it is on the, on the TV. And out of nowhere, Olivia, my daughter, would just come up and swap right in the face. Watch out for her when later on in, after the service. 
But again, the question I always pose is, where did she learn that? She, she doesn't see that from me and my wife. She doesn't see that from, from her brother. Where did she learn that? Where did kids learn how to lie? Interesting that parents often have, and parents, I'm sure, you all, you all can relate to this. You need to often teach how to, how to tell the truth to your kids. Lying comes easy. But that's all because of the sin nature that we are inherently born with. And it's that same sin nature that makes us ignorant of the things of God. And not just ignorant of the things of God, but the Bible says that we are completely hostile to the things of God. That we even suppress the truth of God. We rebel against the things of God. It's why forgiveness is so necessary, because without it, we would just be enemies of God. Enemies of God by choice. And of course, liable for, for judgment to face the punishment of God. Again, their ignorance did not excuse them, but rather it, it pointed to their guilt. It confirmed their guilt, the sin inside them. They were still held liable for Jesus' death and the things that they did to Christ, even in their ignorance. So the extent of Christ's forgiveness was, was not just for what the people had done, but everything that they were by nature. Everything that they were going to do, even in their ignorance, even in their sin. And understand, folks, it wasn't just the people there. It wasn't just the people who crucified Christ who were, who were guilty of this. The Bible says that we are just as guilty in the act of murdering the Son of God. In Isaiah chapter 53, the passage we read earlier says, Surely he has borne our and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity. That passage in Isaiah was written hundreds of years before Christ. And sure, we weren't there 2,000 odd years ago when, when the people mocked him and the people beat him, the people drove nails into his hands, but we may as well have. We may as well have been the ones who drive those nails into his hands. Because our sins, just like those who crucified Jesus, made us enemies, made us rebel, rebels against God and liable for judgment liable for punishment, the wrath of God, which the Bible calls hell. That's the punishment of God. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. In the original Greek, thanatos, not just physical death, but spiritual death, an all-encompassing death, referring to hell. Hell is the punishment for sin, for our sin. And contrary to modern day belief and or, or depictions about hell, hell is not a party. Hell is not a party for where all the, all the bad guys go to and they're drinking and smoking and doing whatever it is they did here on this earth and the devil is their king. That is not an accurate depiction of hell. 
The Bible says hell is a place where the fires are never quenched and the worms never die. It is where all sinners, including the devil himself, is being punished. And listen, that hell is the only thing that we as human beings deserve. That is the only thing that we deserve. Our sins, your sins, and my sins nailed Jesus to the cross. Our sins made the cross and forgiveness necessary. You understand, for forgiveness to come about, for that deus ex machina to come about, Jesus had to die. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Something was happening on the cross that made forgiveness possible. Let's talk about the exchange of forgiveness. The exchange of forgiveness. Jesus died so that, so that forgiveness could take place, so that we could be forgiven. Again, that's the deus ex machina. The most unlikely scenario, the unlikely situation occurring just so that, so that a problem would be resolved. See, God being a holy God, a good and just God, has to, needs to punish sin. Because if he didn't, he would not be good. It's like, it's like a, a judge that lets convicts run free. That looks, past, uh, that looks past crimes. You would not consider him a good judge. That's why God needs to punish sin. That's why hell exists. In order to justly punish sin. What sin deserves. But now the Bible, the Bible also says that God is loving. That he does not wish to see anyone perish, but that all should reach repentance. That all would have peace and have a relationship with him. The Bible says that God is love. So what is God to do? Because now here is his great dilemma. He is a holy God, a just God that needs to punish sin. And he's also a loving God, but the people that he loves have sinned have disobeyed him, have rebelled against him, have declared themselves to be enemies of him. What is a God to do? Does he simply turn a blind eye to sin just to forgive everyone? Then again, God would not be just. This is the dilemma. And again, here is the deus ex machina, the exchange at the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, being God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus Christ, might become the righteousness. This is the great exchange. See, this is how forgiveness works at the cross. This is how, how forgiveness is enabled at the cross. God put everything that we deserve because of our sin, the punishment, the guilt, the wrath, Everything, the hell itself, God places it on His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the cross was. It was the punishment that we deserve. The cross that was ours. God gave the death that we deserve, our cross, to His Son, so that we could be forgiven. Christ suffered and was humiliated, was tortured for us. He went through all of it for us. 
But again, as that passage says in 2 Corinthians, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God takes our sin and places it on Christ so that he is, so that, so that he is still punishing sin like a good judge. So that he is still proven just and righteous. And he takes that perfect life that Jesus lived, that innocence of Christ, and he credits it to us. It's why forgiveness can happen because Jesus, again, willingly took our punishment, took our death, then gave us his life, his innocence, his righteousness, so that we could experience forgiveness of sin. That's the exchange of forgiveness. That's why forgiveness only works at the cross. Sin is still being punished and we're no longer seen as sinners. We are, as Scripture calls it, justified before God, declared righteous. No more guilt. Now, as amazing as that might sound, you might ask, well, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone do this? Why would Jesus willingly go to the cross and take that punishment? To die for sinners, for the same people who accuse him, who blaspheme him, who beat him, who crucified him. The same people who hate him today, the same people who rebel against him, who deny him. Why would Jesus die for sinners and credit his righteousness to those same sinners? Talk about the example of Example of forgiveness. What does forgiveness exemplify? What does forgiveness demonstrate? What does it show? Very simple. Forgiveness exemplifies love. Only reason why a holy God would give up his son, why Christ would willingly go to the cross on the behalf of sinners, is because of love. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still running from God, while we were still rebelling against God, while we were still hurting each other, lying to each other, cheating, walking in pride, walking selfishly, Christ died It was love that spurred Jesus on through the pain. It was love that, that, that got the Savior to endure the stripes on his back that tore his flesh. It was love that got the Savior to persevere on the cross when the Romans drove nine-inch nails through his wrists. Love that kept the Savior on the cross when, when everybody else mocked him. When any weaker man would have said, I'm done, it's over. I don't want to die for you anymore. It's love that kept Christ on the cross. Experiencing the hell, the humiliation, the punishment that The unlikelihood of all of us. Deus ex machina, where, where God 
Joel and demonstrates love to people who did nothing but rebel and hate him. Don't deserve anything. That's the reality of things. We don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve the good things that we have in this life. We don't even deserve the breath in our lungs. Yet in God, God being so loving gives his own son to die on the cross for the people that he loves. Listen, if you've ever wondered in this life when you're going through seasons of trials, going through storms in life, difficulty, if you've ever wondered if God loves you, God cares for you, yeah, please. Here's a demonstration of this. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Who should ever believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. Instead of that eternal punishment, instead of that, that death into hell, Christ came, gave, gave Himself Experience a death that, that we deserved, that we could have eternal life, live forever in paradise rather than in punishment. And this is the great joy of, of Easter, the great celebration of Easter, the way the, the, what assures us that this forgiveness took place, what assures us that this, that this work of Christ on the cross was enough. The great security, the great hope that we have is because in, in this entire story of Easter is because it doesn't end at the cross. The story of Easter begins at the grave. Because three days later, what we celebrate tomorrow on Easter Sunday, that Jesus the Christ rose from the grave, declaring to all that the forgiveness that he paid for by his blood on the cross was sufficient, was enough. That is a great joy that we celebrate. Great triumph that we have. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the, uncirc the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and nailed it to the cross. That's the great joy, the great security that we have as believers, Christ rose from the grave to assure us that we truly have been forgiven of sin. That our sins have truly been paid for by His death and His blood on the cross. And just as that passage says, God made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Great security that just as Jesus rose from the grave, that those in him would one day rise as well. No paradise. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's the joy of it. We mourn Christ's death on Friday, but we celebrate his resurrection. Now, as amazing as all of that is, I can tell from your expression, 
can't, can't talk about forgiveness without talking about the exclusivity of forgiveness. Forgiveness is offered to all, but only given to those who Forgiveness is offered to all, but only given to those who repent. We actually see a great picture of that forgiveness in our passage. Look at this with me in verse 39. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's interesting because in the other Gospels, it talks about how both those criminals, both those thieves on either side of Christ, Mocked Christ, mocked him, railed him, as, as, this, as our passage says. Then something happened to one of the thieves. Something changed. Look at verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, there's a change in his heart, a change in his tone. And in verse 41, he says, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. At some point in those couple of hours that these two thieves were hanging on the cross and, and they were mocking Jesus, one of the thieves came to a revelation, a, a realization. He was getting what he deserved. He came to the realization that this is what his sin deserves, to die on this cross. Meanwhile, this Jesus, this, this, this person that everyone is calling the King of the Jews, the Messiah, the Savior, he did nothing wrong. There is a recognition of sin. A great Puritan preacher said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Same thing for us, church. Until we recognize the, 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 the horror of our sin, the, disgust, the disgusting nature of our sin that put Jesus on the cross, none of this matters. Until we are grieved to the heart, to the soul, of what our sin has done, not just to Christ, but has, what it's done to our life, in its, in its destructive nature, this forgiveness that Christ offers won't matter. Won't be sweet. But unless sin be bitter, Christ will not be. And then here, look, look what happens in our passage. This is the great hope that we have and can experience today in verse, verse 30, 42, rather. Same thief, he says, Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I love this because this, this thief, as we just read, recognized his own sin, recognized that the cross is what he deserved. And what he's asking from Jesus here is, is not a free ticket into paradise, into heaven. What he's asking is for mercy. Asking for grace. Mercy is withholding from us what we truly deserve. And grace is giving to us what we have never earned or deserved. 
That's what this thief is asking from the Savior. Remember me when you come into your paradise. When you come into your kingdom. I love Jesus' response. This is the heart of the Savior. Love for the sinner. Said to him, Truly I say to you today, Jesus didn't say, okay, great. Now you have to say five Hail Marys, give to the poor, get baptized, learn the, the doctrine of justification by faith. Five points of Calvinism. He didn't say any of that. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will experience mercy and grace from me. Why? Because this thief in this moment, in his final hours, put his faith and trust and believed in the Savior. That great verse that we read, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him not perish, but have everlasting life. Not whoever goes to church X amount of times, or whoever gives X amount of dollars to the poor, or whoever learns this doctrine, whoever goes to Bible school, whoever lives a righteous and perfect life, we can't. We're sinners. I'm sorry. The Bible is very clear. Whoever believes the Savior in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever puts their trust their hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Whoever puts their security, their eternal destination in the hands of the Savior. Whoever puts their entire life and, and rests it in the finished work of Christ in the cross and the grave. That's who gets eternal. That faith, that belief is simply Lord, is, is, is putting your hands in the air and saying, God, I cannot do anything. God, I, I, there's nothing good that I can do to make up for the sin I've committed, the life I've lived. I wholeheartedly put my trust and my hope and my security in That's how we get salvation. That's how we get forgiven. Similar to this man on the cross. That's the invitation for us this morning. If you have yet to repent, and I, you know, you hear this word repent, and I get it, it's a big word and a Christian, a Christian term that's probably lost in our day and age, but it's simply. You've been going one way. Repentance means that you're going to go this other way. Repentance means you've been living your life for yourself. You've been living your life for your pleasures and your, your lust and everything you desire for. Repentance simply means that you're going to go Christ's way. You're going to go towards God instead. That's repentance. You're no longer going to live this way. You're going to live this way instead. If you have yet to do that, follow Christ. 
Believe in him like the thief on this cross. I invite you to do so today. I invite you to do so today. Listen, you've got, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, confess simply meaning if we agree that we are sinners, if we agree to the charges laid against us, if we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the free gift of God to us. The free gift that the cross of Christ has afforded us. The invitation is like the thief on the cross, if you have yet to do that, Put your faith in Christ today. Don't wait. The Bible says that our, our life is like a vapor in the wind. We don't know if we have tomorrow. We're not guaranteed a minute in this life. Don't wait. Receive his forgiveness today. Before we close, I want to encourage the believers, those who have already put their faith in Christ, I think this word of forgiveness is definitely for us in that a lot of us are still living under the weight of our sin. Guilt and the shame of our sin. We read earlier during worship that there's no more condemnation in Christ. A lot of us are still living under the condemnation of our sin. Here's this great reminder from, our, from, from, the, from the word of God that all our trespasses have been forgiven at the cross and have been nailed there by the Savior Himself. All of it. And unlike the culture that we live in today that defines people by the, 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 the sins of their past, Christ defines us by His righteousness. And listen, brother and sister in Christ, listen, in Jesus, you are not defined by your sins. You're not... Your identity does not reside in your, your sinful past. It resides in the righteousness of our Savior. You have been justified, declared righteous before the eyes of God. You no longer have to walk in your sin. You no longer have to walk in, in the condemnation of your sin and in the things of your past. And walk in the freedom that we receive. This Easter, as we close up here, let us remember what has afforded us. Let us remember that, that great act of God, that Deus ex machina, that, that God stepped in, saved sinners did not deserve saving, who did not deserve forgiveness. Let us remember what we have been forgiven by. Works of sin, evil, the bad, all of it. But we can have life.
Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move tonight. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict hearts. Your word says that it is only you that can turn a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Holy Spirit, by your mercies, I pray that you'd move in the hearts of every individual. Voice. You are here this morning, and if you have yet to reconcile your sins to the cross of Jesus Christ, I pray that you'd do so today. I pray that you would ask for forgiveness. That you would Repent of your sins. Recognize what your sins have done to put Savior on the cross. You have yet you have yet to find a right relationship with the Father today. I, I pray that you would do so. That you would lay aside any pride would lay aside anything that any of your own will any past experiences that might get you to second guess all that has been mentioned and all that has been talked about today again you have nothing to lose and everything to gain all of eternity to gain, all of forgiveness and the love of God to gain if you put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Not in yourself. Not in the good that you can do. Not in, not in anything that you can put your hands to do to try to claim, look, I'm good and holy. You cannot be enough. You cannot be good enough. The Bible says, None is righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that all our righteousness is filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. And here's the great joy. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, once again, He's the one that lived the perfect life. He's the one who finished the work on the cross. That's what He meant when He says, It is finished. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. He died the death that we should have died. And in, in Him, He credits all of that to us. So I invite you, if you have yet, to throw your hands up in the air and plead for mercy from a holy God, putting your faith in the only person and the only one that can save you from the wrath of God, from hell itself the punishment of sin that we truly deserve, I pray that you would do so today, that you would not leave this place until you get right with God. God loves you. Absolutely loves you. This is His call for you to be in a right relationship with 
brothers and sisters in Christ who are still living under the weight of their sin, who is still living under the shame of their sin. Listen, Jesus has risen and has declared those sins nailed on the cross. You no longer have to live in the guilt and shame of your past. Jesus has declared you by his resurrected self that you are forgiven. The call for you, brothers and sisters, to now live, live for Christ. Live for him who died on the cross for you. Live in his victory. Live in his triumph. Live in his freedom. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you, oh Lord, for what you have done and what you have declared by rising from the grave that we no longer have to live under the condemnation of sin, under the judgment of sin, under the punishment of sin, because our dear Savior took that punishment on the cross for us. He took that condemnation for us. Lord, we praise you and we glorify you because for those who are in Christ today, we stand in victory and in triumph. We stand knowing that when we die and we leave this place, that we will spend eternity with our Savior, the Savior who loved us. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that you have shown us, even though we did not once at all deserve it. Again, I pray, oh God, for the heart that has yet to reconcile with you, Lord God, in these last few minutes, I pray that you would move and stir in their hearts, and that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, we praise you, we exalt you, we lift your name on high, we declare your victory this Easter weekend, in Jesus, your mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.